The Theonauts, episode 123. The one where we revel in the joy of sectarian partisanship while basking in the truth of our righteous indignation of other so-called Christians. <laughs> the Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theo fraternity out there. I'm David Gaddy, and this is The The Theonauts. Yes, I am in the studio alone today. Well, except, of course, our buddy Screwtape over there. But Jeremiah has been really busy. Last week, he was traveling into the nether regions of Kansas, and we were planning on doing a show this week, but he got a little baked I guess. Well, no, he didn't get baked. He got sick. So anyway, he's struggling right now. And just as he's getting better, his little Blakely came down with uh, something. And so anyway, I wanted to make sure that we didn't leave you guys out in the cold too long. So what we're going to do is, you know how here on the Theonauts, we are all about unity. That's one of our key goals is to try and unite Christians and to bring them together so that uh, our oneness might speak to the glory of Jesus Christ and fulfill the, the wishes that he had as he was leaving this earth and pray to his Father that we all be one. So what I would like to do is this episode, I am going to turn the mic over to the late, great W. Carl Ketcherside who is going to give us a little dissertation on unity and how we should be called to unity. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode and uh, get a break from me and Jeremiah for a while, but you will be endowed with much greater wisdom and knowledge this week, I'm sure. So without further ado, here is Carl Ketcher's side with an address called A Call to Unity Among Christian Believers. We live in an age of transition. Perhaps there has never been a time in the history of humanity when more profound changes were evident. Not all of these are good. Some are fraught with gravest consequences for our future. But there is one transformation which I think is excellent. I refer to the changing pattern of thought with regard to the sectarian spirit. It is difficult for many of us to realize that at the onset of the 20th century, sincere men sought to justify religious partisanship as being an implementation of the will of God. The blessings of heaven were called down upon the divergent sectarian establishments and men gloried in them. We have survived to see a reversal of this whole philosophy. Almost universally, those who are still ensnared in the thorny thickets 
of denominational controversy are seeking a means of extricating themselves from their predicament. Schism is branded as the scandal of our time. Division is regarded as disgraceful to our plea for the one body of Christ. Obviously, not every individual agrees with this changing outlook. Some are still seeking to condone traditional patterns of strife and find scriptural sanction for separating the family of God into warring tribes and feuding factions. But this type of parochial thinking is fast disappearing as men seek for a better solution to family problems in Christ than narrowness of vision and bitterness of heart. Just off the New York Turnpike is a large restaurant with two striking murals upon opposite walls. These depict two events in the career of Washington Irving's legendary Rip Van Winkle. In the first picture, Rip is climbing up into the Catskills with his trusty musket on his shoulder and his faithful dog by his side. Below him is the village with the British flag flying in front of a tavern bearing the name of King George. The other painting shows Van Winkle descending after his 20 years of sleep, which he mistakenly thought was a long afternoon nap. His clothing hangs in tatters. The stock of his gun has long since rotted away and only the rusty barrel remains. But the greatest change is in the village. No longer does the inn have a swinging sign with the name King George upon it. The Union Jack of Great Britain has been replaced with a new flag, the Stars and Stripes. Rip Van Winkle had slept through the revolution. It is to prevent ourselves from doing the same thing in the current spiritual revolution everywhere manifest that we ask you to examine with us honestly and carefully the question, who is my Christian brother? We seriously doubt that there is a more challenging question to which we may address ourselves in this generation. Upon our answer to it depends to a great extent the part we will play in helping to answer the prayer of Jesus for the oneness of all believers in him. Let us think about that fervent petition once more as recorded in John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus has just prayed for the apostles. Now he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Please notice that this is just one sentence in your King James Version of the Bible. It has only 52 little words. Half of them have three letters or less. Only four contain as many as seven letters, the words neither, through, and believe, which appears twice. Yet in this one sentence, made up of such little words, we have portrayed for us the who, where, and why of Christian unity. For whom did Jesus pray? for every person in the whole wide world who is led to believe in him through the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the apostles. Faith is the belief of testimony, and testimony has to do with witness to facts. Every person who hears the good news of Jesus and acknowledges its veracity and credibility and pledges allegiance to Jesus on the basis of that message or in response to it is a believer. Jesus wants all who believe in him to be one. The oneness for which Jesus prayed is personal. It was the kind of oneness he sustained with the Father. It was not based upon a legal arrangement, but upon the blending and merging of two personalities possessed of divine nature. 
It was not secured by conference, creed, or concordat. It was expressed by the term thou in me and I in thee. It was not produced by law, but predicated upon love. In the adjacent context, Jesus says, I in them and thou in me as thou hast loved me. It is probable that such oneness can never come except by love, and it is not possible that there be any exception to oneness with such love. It is simply inconceivable that with such love the Father and Son would not be one, and it is not conceivable how we can be one without such love. The divine purpose for our unity is apparent. Unity is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. As important as unity is, it is not primary but secondary. Its true value and significance lies in what can result from it, in what it may lead to. The acceptance of Jesus by the world is conditioned upon the oneness of those who have accepted Jesus. The world can only be one to believe in Christ when those in the world who believe in Christ are one. This means that the number one problem in the Christian world today is division, and our immediate objective must be the solution of this problem and the achievement of unity. The situation is aggravated by our multiplicity of sects and factions, and those who are concerned are hard put to know where to start. We are involved and enveloped in such a maze of apparently contradictory creeds and conflicting opinions that the situation appears hopeless. But all of us have had the experience in the past of trying to untie a sack and getting the string so snarled as to frustrate our every attempt, only to have someone step up and take hold of the proper strand and open it with ease. Is there such a thread running through our knotty problem which will help unravel it? Let us remember that all such problems exist in the heart before they are translated into reality. The place to attack them, then, is in the heart. The condition we see is a symptom or result. We can theorize about unity, we can teach its value, we can threaten those who do not practice it, but none of these approaches will be effective. In its final analysis, all unity is personal and it is all individual. Just as the Father and the Son cannot help but be one since both are possessed of divine nature, so we cannot help but be one when we possess that nature. A short time ago, we were experimenting with magnetic force. We had two small pieces of magnetized steel, and when we got them in proper position, they automatically came together. They did not have to be pulled or pushed together, but spontaneously reacted because of the nature of the power that was in them. Now, if we can properly position our hearts, we too will be drawn together. I hold that a proper understanding of our brotherly relationship in the family of God will condition our hearts for greater unity by freeing us from some of the unwholesome attitudes and unhealthful inhibitions from which so many suffer in these days. It is all very simple when you think about it in this way. The Apostle John says, God is love. He affirms this twice in 1 John 4, verse 8, and again in verse 16. This is the divine nature. From it all spiritual oneness stems. Without it, no spiritual unity is attainable. When I translate the love God had for me into love for my brothers, and they do the same, we will automatically come together, and no power can keep us apart. The kind of love which unites is divine love. It is not human love elevated to divine heights, but divine love appropriated on the human level. 
It is not just the kind of love God had, but the love that God is. This love must not be something we have, but something we are, so that when we manifest it, we are actually giving ourselves to our brothers. So long as we seek to hang on to self and merely bestow love, we will end up being selfish, and selfishness is the root evil from which all strife stems and all division develops. Self must be crucified that love may be purified. Hate takes the life of another, but love gives life for another. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3, 15, 16. It will no doubt be argued by some that since love must flow both directions to produce unity, that we can be excused from loving a brother until he is willing to reciprocate. It is astounding how many there are who are afraid to turn love loose in order to accomplish the divine purpose. Our task is to manifest love and let love remove the obstacles. If God had sought to remove the obstacles before his love became operative, we would still be lost in sin. He did not wait until we loved him, but loved us without waiting. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Love is a responsive action which first flows in and then flows out. Perhaps you've heard of the reversible falls up in the New England states. When the ocean tide comes in, it actually pushes the water of a certain river backwards, and the salt water forces its way upstream for a long distance. When the tide starts to go out, the pent-up force of the river is released and comes frothing down its rocky bed to the ocean. When the love from your heart is manifested toward a brother who has been alienated, it may have to penetrate a long distance before it creates a response. But there is no force which can overcome love for long. It will eventually come surging back to overflow everything within its path. There is more to the expression, love never faileth, than most of us realize. In view of the fact that we are under divine direction to love our brethren, all of them, it seems that if we can determine who are our brothers and start loving them in deed and in truth, it will immediately make a great deal of difference in our personal lives and in the world. We can begin with the recognition that brotherhood is a state or condition in which we share as brothers. Actually, the suffix hood is from a derivative form which relates to rank or condition. It is a noun-forming suffix which denotes those of a given state or character. Whatever is essential to becoming brothers is all that is essential to creating brotherhood, and the brotherhood includes all who have entered that state. All of us know that we are not brothers in the natural realm because we agree upon every matter which arises, because many who are brothers in the flesh differ seriously about the methods of carrying out family responsibilities. Neither are we brothers because we have arrived at the same degree of knowledge or attained the same level of learning. It is quite possible for one who is in high school to have a brother who is just starting to kindergarten. We do not regard lack of conformity as being dangerous to the family welfare unless those who are in the family hold antisocial and antagonistic attitudes toward each other. 
Even then, it's not the fact that they differ which creates the real problem, but that they cannot differ in mutual love and respect for one another. We are brothers in the flesh because of the circumstances of birth and not because of the birth of circumstances. We are not in the family because we have the same preferences, but because we have the same parents. We cannot choose our brothers. All who are born of the same father and mother are brothers and sisters, whether they recognize each other or not. Recently, the newspapers carried an account of two brothers who met each other after 30 years. Neither knew the other was still alive. They were separated while still mere children, but they were brothers all of the time. They did not become brothers when reunion took place, but the reunion took place because they were brothers. There can be no reunion without prior union. In the family of God, as in our earthly families, brotherhood is based upon fatherhood and fellowship is conditioned upon sonship. The brothers of Joseph recognized this when they said to him, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Genesis 42, 13. All who are familiar with the story of Joseph are aware of the distressing differences between his brothers, yet it was envy and jealousy which destroyed the family unity, and it was his love for his, his brothers which brought peace to the family. One of the most poignant scenes in the Bible is the one described in the words, And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known to his brethren, and he wept aloud. The Hebrew literally rendered is, He gave forth his voice in weeping. Now, just as we become brothers by the process of birth, so we become spiritual brothers by the new birth. Jesus declared, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When Nicodemus confused this with physical birth, Jesus gave a further explanation. Except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It is evident that all who are thus born do enter into the kingdom of God. From the standpoint of citizenship, those who are in fellowship with God are said to be in the kingdom of God. From the standpoint of relationship, they are said to be in the family of God. The citizens of the kingdom are the children of the family. If I have been born again, I am a brother to every other person who has been born again. Wherever God has a child on this earth, I have a brother, and I am obligated to love that brother, regardless of any extenuating circumstance. My love cannot be based upon racial, social, or sectarian qualifications, for none of these were conditions of the new birth. I cannot dictate the terms of spiritual birth any more than I could determine the basis of my physical birth. If one has been born again, I must accept him or lay the foundation for my own rejection. If I reject one of my father's children and deny his paternity, this is not so much a reflection upon him as upon the father. Fraternity is based upon paternity, not upon a pattern of procedure. We must be realistic enough to recognize that differences do create problems, and they present strains and stresses upon our relationship. But if we love the father as we should, and place the family relationship ahead of our personal gratification, we will make the sacrifices requisite to maintain the family ties. Not all of God's children are flawless. They do not all have perfect vision. Some are spiritually anemic, some are crippled, and others are handicapped in various ways. The Heavenly Father has some retarded children in His family. But if I love the Father, I will love them and not be resentful because they hinder my own progress. 
Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God, and every one that loveth him that begot loveth him that is begotten of him. Again, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? One of the most touching and at the same time one of the most thrilling examples of devotion I have ever known concerns a family in which a mentally retarded child was born. The father was killed in an accident and the mother devoted her life to caring for her unfortunate child. When it became apparent that the mother herself was approaching death, she summoned the married children and placed the care of the retarded sister in their hands. I personally know something about the problems they encountered, but I shall not forget the remark of one of the brothers as made to me. He said, she is ours because our parents made us all theirs. We owe our lives to them, and it is a small thing to repay the gift of life with a life of giving. This is the true spirit of brotherhood which all of us need to capture so that the family relationship will not be severed every time our problems are intensified. Let us face the facts of spiritual life. There is a condition existing in our contemporary religious world which complicates the approach to unity among believers in Christ, regardless of how sincere we may be in attempting to answer our Lord's prayer for oneness. Just as Satan infiltrated the Garden of Eden and set man against God, so he has wormed his way into the spiritual paradise and created rivalry among God's children. Appealing to pride on the one hand and love of ease on the other, he has encouraged the rise of partisan sects until today the name Christian is applied to a conglomerate mass of creeds, crusades, and confusing covenants. It would appear that we are helpless victims of human opinions and hopelessly entangled by conflicting conclusions. But allow me to inject a note of optimism. God is on the side of unity, and it is his will, the divine will, that all who truly love him should be one. Again, Jesus did not pray for an impossibility. He did not voice an empty, vacuous statement incapable of achievement. When Jesus prayed from the depths of a heart filled full of yearning, we must never forget that it can be fulfilled by hearts dedicated unto him. Two, this is the age of the abiding Holy Spirit. When our Lord returned to heaven for his coronation ceremony, he did not leave us orphans. He sent another helper who will remain with us through the age. The Holy Spirit is steadily, inexorably moving us toward the fruition of the divine will and purpose. To those who question why God has not long ago answered the prayer of Jesus, it is enough to say that God does not work in this fashion. He waits for the fullness of time. We are agents of divine accomplishment. Because our earthly lives are so short and frail, we grow impatient and become fretful if we do not see the culmination of our hopes while marching through the earth as strangers and pilgrims. But God is within the shadows, watching, leading, directing us to the inevitable goal, which must be the triumph of right over wrong and of truth over error. Then what can simple, humble persons like ourselves do to help in the divine plan and purpose of the ages? There are a great many things we can do, and if we do not do them, the world will be the poorer because of our failure. The first thing we must resolve to do is to recognize every person who has been born again as a brother. It will be easier to do this if we recall that we are brothers by an act of God, for if we truly love the Father, we will love all those who are his. 
The next thing we must do is to activate love toward all of our brothers in whatever party, sect, or faction they may be found. This means that we must rise above every sectarian wall or factional barrier and manifest love to all who need it. We cannot restrict our demonstrations of love to those who are in the same sect or party as ourselves, for that would take a glorious universal and administer it on a narrow and parochial basis. It would be like trying to limit the atmosphere, which was meant for all men to breathe, to those who are of a certain color or who reside in a specific location. The love of which the Bible speaks is not an emotion. It is not merely an affection, disposition, or sensation. It is an action produced by the will. An emotion cannot be commanded. But Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Because nothing is more powerful than will, nothing can resist or conquer love. The apostle writes, There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. The barriers of fellowship cannot stand against love. In the third place, we must resolve never to make anything a test of fellowship which God has not made a condition of salvation. We should be willing to welcome all whom God receives and on the basis that he accepts them. If they are good enough for him to accept, they should not be too bad for us to welcome. We cannot create the family relationship. Our responsibility is to recognize and respect it and then to rejoice in it. There is another thing we must also do. We see the family of God torn by schism and rent by partisan discard. This means that we must start at once to remedy the present status, to bind up the breaches and heal the wounds. We must become dedicated and committed to the task of restoring unity. In short, since peace has not been made, we must become peacemakers. Making peace is not easy. It is not a job for the thin-skinned or the thick-souled. It is a responsibility to be approached carefully and prayerfully. One way that we can contribute to peace is to resolve never to be a party to any other division among God's children and to labor ardently to overcome those divisions which now exist. We must think brotherhood, talk brotherhood, and teach brotherhood. Today, we are where our thinking has brought us. Tomorrow, we will be where our thinking takes us. All that is necessary to change the state of things is to change the state of our thinking. Wow. All we have to do is change the state of our thinking. That address was given over 40 years ago, guys, 40 years ago, and yet we've come a long way, but at the same time, we are still so divided and so argumentative, and it is to the detriment of the name of Jesus Christ that we have landed in the place that we're in. So anyway, I hope that it was uh, enlightening to hear some of, of um, Brother Ketcherside's address. Uh, we have um, a lot more of these that I'd like to do at some point. Um, if you are interested in um, getting more information or getting or listening to any more of, of his addresses now, you can you can get those online for free at unity-in, like I-N, dash diversity.org. 
So it's unityindiversity.org separated with dashes. Um, so that website has uh, books online that you can that you can download. It's it has books in print. It has uh, links to Kindle books. Um, it has audio files and a video file. Um, it's kind of a, of a collection of the writings of Mr. Ketcherside. So anyway. Uh, the Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network using new media and social networking to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, go to gctnetwork.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and stay up to date with all of our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and The Secret Fire Podcast. Visit our website at theonautspodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Uh, visit us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher, and be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a larger audience. There are several ways you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com or call us on our voicemail line, 972-885-7270. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theonauts. And if you like us and want even more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash Theonauts. Your patronage helps in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs. Don't forget to tune in and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us again. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you next time. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your great commission. This is your great commission transmission. At gctnetwork.com. I wrote a book.